Technical production for The Aaron Rupar Show is provided by Studio Americana, an audiobook and podcast production company based in Minneapolis, serving clients nationwide. I would say my number one responsibility is keeping the team united. I think the governor has referred to it as herding cats. Um, and he's, you know, glad that it's my job and not his. But we we have stayed really united. So I think kind of like being the, the head coach for the t- for the team is the part about being speaker that's very different from just being a rank and file legislator. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Aaron Rupar Show. Today, I have a guest who I am really excited to talk to, Melissa Hortman, the Speaker of the Minnesota House. Uh, Democrats here in Minnesota have a trifecta that they just won last November, and on the heels of that, they had a legislative session where they got a breathtaking array of progressive legislation passed, everything from free school meals to legal recreational marijuana, and so I plan to talk to Speaker Hortman Uh, About that session, but also kind of, you know, I know a lot of my listeners and viewers are national people, so about kind of lessons that can be taken on a national level from the success that Democrats have had here in Minnesota. Uh, You know, Minnesota has kind of become sort of the anti-Florida in a lot of ways, where Florida is kind of demonstrating what Republicans can do when they have a trifecta. Uh, you know, a lot of culture warring and, um, you know, banning books, things like that. And uh, Minnesota has kind of been the the opposite of that and serves as an example of what Democrats can do when they have the trifecta. So we'll get into all of that. And also Melissa's story as a legislator is pretty interesting in its own right. She has been in the legislature for about 20 years now and obviously has risen up to a leadership position, has been speaker for five years. Um, but her district is, you know, suburban, um, bordering some pretty Trumpy areas to the north and west of Minneapolis. And so I plan to talk to her about how she engages with constituents of hers who would never vote for her. And, uh, you know, we'll talk about how she has increased her margins uh, from winning very narrowly, you know, back 20 years ago when she first won her seat to winning by about, you know, between 15 and 20 points now. Um, you know, some of that might be demographics, but I think some of that is a testament to her political skill as well. So we will get into that when I talk to her. I also want to announce up front that this will be the last podcast for three weeks. I'm taking the next two Wednesdays off from recording the show. Uh, my family and myself are in the process of moving into a house that we are trying to buy. So that's good news. We need a little more space with our two kids, uh, you know, for them to play and kind of stretch out and have their own room and things like that. Um, we have actually run into some snags in the closing process. The The final inspection of the home uh, raised some pretty major red flags that we are trying to work through with the builder and a real estate agent. So uh, we were actually planning to be in the process of moving right about now into the Labor Day weekend and things are a little bit delayed, but either we will be moving over these next couple of weeks or we'll, we will be dealing with some housing uncertainty. Either way, um, I'm going to have a lot going on personally and obviously with the newsletter uh, taking up a lot of my time, I need to take a couple weeks uh, on these Wednesdays and kind of focus on family stuff. So I am going to be back uh, that third week in September, which I think falls around the 20th, and I've got some good guests lined up for uh, that last edition, I guess, in the summer before we hit officially the beginning of fall and then into the fall as well. So with all that being said, let me also one uh, final time here before the show goes on a brief hiatus 
I encourage people that if you are watching this on YouTube, I would love it if you liked this episode and subscribed to the show. Uh, leave positive reviews wherever you can and uh, share the show with your friends, families, colleagues, uh, you know, people uh, who you think are into, you know, progressive politics, talking about national politics, or even kind of more local stuff in the case of the show today, Minnesota specifically. Uh, please share it to help spread the word. So without further ado, let me get into my conversation with Speaker Hortman. Hello and welcome to the Aaron Rupar Show. Today I'm very excited to have the Speaker of the Minnesota House of Representatives, Melissa Hortman, on the show with me. Uh, Speaker Hortman, thanks a lot for making time this morning. I know this time of year here in Minnesota, uh, politicians tend to spend a lot of time at the state fair, uh, shaking hands, kissing babies, all of that good stuff. So I appreciate you blocking off some time to uh, not be there and to talk to me. Happy to be here. You know, when I go to the state fair, I really focus on the food. So it's the must-haves are the sweet corn, the mini donuts, and then a pronto pup or a corn dog. You have to have a taste test. And then whichever one you like better, you have to have a second one. Yeah. And and this year, of course, there's been a ton of attention on the Iowa State Fair because all of the uh, Republican presidential candidates, including Trump, have been there. And on election years, the the Minnesota State Fair is a big deal as well. This year being an off year here in Minnesota, it feels like there's a little less uh, attention being paid. Of course, uh, Senators Klobuchar and Smith had some pretty legendary tweets with uh, some of the firemen shirtless, uh, you know, having some fun. Uh, I think that's probably my number one uh, political impression from the fair thus far. But I, I assume that you've already done your obligatory appearance or, or are you there multiple days? I have not done my obligatory experience <laughs> at the fair. And I was thinking about skipping it this year because it's an odd numbered year. And I think um, Minnesotans as well as uh, state representatives love that there's an off year. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the morning after we record this, I'm taking my one-year-old and three-year-old to the fair. We were actually planning on skipping it. And then my wife had the idea, since we don't have childcare this week anyway, with it being kind of the week before Labor Day of taking the kids to the fair. So uh, this may be the last time people hear from me. I mean, we'll see how it goes tomorrow. But uh, that seems like an experience that could result in one of us running away from home. I don't know if it'd be the kids or me or my wife, but uh, you know, wish us luck as we take the kids there. They do have a little kid midway area, and they're both very into music and food. So I'm anticipating it'll be fun, but that's probably one of the more intense uh, family experiences that we've had thus far. I, my advice is uh, early morning is better for the parking and all that. And may <laughs> you have uh, low humidity. Yes. Yeah, we are planning on going in the morning, which will also kind of limit things because they need their naps at around noon. So I guess, you know, three, four hours will probably be uh, sufficient for that. But uh, we're here to talk politics, not, you know, state fair and uh, family and all that good stuff. And um, of course, being speaker uh, in, during this historic time in Minnesota, I'm sure has kind of raised your national profile in a way that, you know, when there was divided government, um, you know, was not the case. And um, of course, I think Minnesota these days gets a lot of national attention for being kind of the anti-Florida, where Florida is demonstrating what Republicans can do when they have a trifecta. And there's been a lot of culture warring, pushes to ban books, uh, things like that down there. And up here in Minnesota with the Democratic tri trifecta, this past session, um, you know, Democrats got a lot of stuff done, everything from free school meals to protecting abortion rights to legalizing marijuana. And so um, how is that, I guess, just very broadly, you know, have you noticed that you've been getting a lot more media inquiries from national outlets, things like that? Um, you know, it seems like Minnesota, the, the legislature has been much more kind of in the national news cycle this year than in previous ones. 
Well, it's great to um, have the conversations with folks. We, we have been getting lots of inquiries about what we've done. And I don't know if it's because we're the anti-Florida or it's just really hopeful, the things that we've yeah. been able to do. When we look at the things that we've been able to do, I think the the through line is improving people's lives. And when you look at something like school lunch and school breakfast. So when little kids get off the bus and they go, they can just have breakfast at school. It's really simple. But also what that means for um, moms and dads of kids is that it's going to be a little bit less stressful keeping that lunch account full. When you look at something like paid family medical leave, it seems so simple. So, so many people do have it, but so many people don't have it. But when you think about just having that time to bond with your child or to help somebody during an illness. So I think that the thing that has attracted attention is the quantity of things that we we did. Mm -hmm. But in some ways, you know, the focus was singular and just how can we make people's lives a little bit better? Yeah. Yeah. And let's let's dive into that a little bit more because, you know, I mainly these days I'm from Minnesota. I covered Minnesota politics for a while. But these days I mainly, of course, cover national stuff, um, you know, with some additional attention being paid to Minnesota just because I live here and I'm familiar with the state and all of that good stuff. But um, I think, you know, a lot of my coverage, I think a lot of the coverage nationally focuses a lot on problems within the Republican Party, whether, you know, that's kind of the extremism problem that they have. And I think in Minnesota, they've had in particular kind of a candidate quality problem, you know, having, you know, kind of extreme candidates or, you know, fringe candidates that don't necessarily embody sort of the mainstream voter or represent the mainstream voter here in Minnesota. But let's let's talk a little bit about what Democrats have done um, in the sense of kind of broadening the coalition and increasing their support. And, you know, maybe a good place to start with this is to talk about your background a little bit. Um, you were first elected to the House in Minnesota in 2004 at a time where I think there was a perception that the Republican Party here was kind of on the ascendant. You had uh, Governor Tim Pawlenty in his first term, he won re-election in 2006, two years after you were first elected, and that turns out still to be the last statewide election that Republicans have won here. So they're on almost a 20-year, you know, two-decade losing streak at this point. Um, what are some adjustments you've seen uh, within the DFL, as it's called here, the Democratic Farmer Labor Party is, is sort of the uh, official name for the Democratic Party here. But what are some adjustments the DFL has made in that time, kind of independently of what's going on with Republicans that accounts for all the success that the party's had over the last two decades? Well, I think you you can't discount the um, issue that you talked about as a candidate quality on the Republican side. And, and when candidates are like what you described, we refer to them as Trumpy. And I think that the Republicans have a very significant brand problem. Democrats, on the other hand, what we have tried to do is kind of focus in on those things that unite us. We're a big tent party. So we have people with really a large range of views, but by focusing in on those things that unite us from the Iron Range to the Iowa border to Minneapolis and St. Paul and focusing on being a little bit more pragmatic. You know, we certainly have loved when we've been able to do things with Republicans, when we've had that bipartisanship. There used to be a thing called a moderate Republican in politics, and we're really not seeing those folks run for office and get elected. On the Democratic side, you are seeing pragmatists and whether they're very, very progressive or more conservative Democrats, I think we tend to be more pragmatic. I think we we don't want to be seeing those culture war issues that Republicans seem to relish. I think, you know, we're focused on really the, the bread and butter, making sure we have the money to pave the roads, to keep the bridges safe, to fund the schools adequately, make sure 
public servants are well paid uh, from mm. police officers to firefighters to teachers. Yeah. So I yeah. think maybe sticking to the basics, maybe just really um, kind of focusing on the boring stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, within that, though, I mean, it, it is, you know, I don't know if boring stuff is, you know, there it's important stuff. It might not be uh, as juicy as some other issues that get a lot of attention. But um, even within all the things that Democrats did this year in Minnesota, I think, you know, most everything and correct me you know, if I'm wrong, if there are major exceptions, but it seems like there is bipartisan support for you know, at least nominally on the Republican side for a lot of these major initiatives. And, you know, for instance, like with the bonding bill. In the Senate, I believe that had to have some Republican votes, given that you need a supermajority. And I think it's just a one seat margin in the Senate. So that bill could not have gotten through the Senate without some Republican votes. So, you know, maybe this is something I think for, you know, more of the the national people who listen and watch this show, you know, some lessons maybe from that. Where, where do you see kind of ripe areas for bipartisanship or were there specific issue sets where it seemed like, Republicans were more willing to play ball and uh, take some some votes, you know, that might tarnish them among their voters as being kind of squishy or, you know, going along with Democrats. And, you know, there's certainly an appetite within the Republican Party to never do that and to be very hardline and never compromise um, and just be, you know, kind of a roadblock or a vote in opposition. But were there particular areas where it seemed like uh, when push came to shove, Republicans were willing to work together with Democrats? And, you know, maybe I shouldn't use the word boring. Maybe I should uh, use the word basic fundamental governance, right? And that's where we did see some bipartisanship. So as you mentioned, the bonding bill or the capital investment bill, when we're looking at having wastewater infrastructure that works all across the state, no matter where you live, um, looking at having great college and university facilities and maintaining those over time so that generations of students will benefit from the investments that we've made in the past, those are areas where we've seen some bipartisanship, um, getting rid of lead pipes. You know, in the year 2023, we shouldn't have lead pipes uh, going to people's houses. We know that it has irreversible impacts on uh, children's brain development. So we did see a little bit of bipartisanship on those issues. But unfortunately, the Minnesota Republicans kind of decided with this Democratic trifecta, that if we were going to do a lot of good things, one line of criticism they wanted to have was that we were partisan. So they kind of made a conscious decision to really pressure their folks to not vote with us on things that people wanted to. No reason to vote against a great school funding bill. There's no reason to vote against a great college funding bill. But basically, they did take a lot of those party line votes, and it was to have an argument in the next election. One thing I've seen in the 26 years I've been running is some people are willing to uh, flush policy solutions down the toilet to have an argument in an election. Mm. And I'm just too pragmatic to um, to use issues in that way. And I, I think that's probably part of the appeal that, that Minnesotans saw in our party in the last election. Technical production for The Aaron Rupar Show is provided by Studio Americana an audiobook and podcast production company based in Minneapolis, serving clients nationwide. Studio Americana specializes in high-quality recording, editing, and production services. They work with authors and publishers looking to meet the growing demand for audiobook content. Their team of producers and editors ensure the process is easy and efficient. They also assist with equipment, voice coaching services, voice talent for audiobook narration, and professional podcasts. If you're ready to get started, Go to studioamericana.com forward slash contact to set up a meeting.
You mentioned the, the 26 years that you've been running and, you know, kind of an interesting aspect of your biography that people may not know. I mean, now that you're House Speaker and, you know, presiding over the House during very important and consequential times is that the first two times that you ran for the legislature, you lost, which I think was in uh, 98 and 2000. And then you won in 04, if I'm remembering that correctly. Um, and that's, you know, that can be a very humbling experience. I mean, my uh, when I moved to D.C., my boss at Think Progress, Judd Legum, who, you know, now is a very successful journalist and was the editor there, he had run for the Maryland House, I think it's called the House of Delegates there, um, a few years before he got into journalism and ended up losing a very hard-fought election, and that kind of soured him, uh, or at least, you know, I don't know if it soured him necessarily, it soured him on running for office. He never ran again. He ended up pivoting into journalism. He's had a very successful career, so I'm sure he doesn't regret that. But, you know, in your case, you lost twice and then took, you know, a short break before running a third time, winning, and now here you are. But um, what were some lessons that you took from that experience, and how humbling was that as just obviously a very driven person um, to go through, you know, an experience. I'm, I'm assuming those were very tight elections, given that your district was very tight when you when you first won. But just kind of reflect on that a little bit. I'm interested to hear what that was like. No, funny story. I got shellacked. Uh, so in 1998, oh. uh, Jesse Ventura was on the ballot, and we also had um, a question putting a constitutional right to hunt and fish in the Minnesota Constitution. And women in the suburbs just got shellacked in 98. Hmm. You know, there were a fair number of voters who were not frequent voters who kicked off the covers that morning and said, I'm going to go vote for the wrestler. And those <laughs> were people we hadn't campaigned to. So my lesson in 98 was sometimes people will show up who you think by, you know, voter scores and their past behavior aren't going to vote. And so my takeaway there was you have to talk to everybody. I, I say mm -hmm. to our candidates, give every voter a chance to fall in love with you, uh, mm -hmm. you know, to appreciate you and be willing to vote for you. So I campaign a lot more widely um, mm -hmm. because of the 98 loss. Uh, I also got shellacked in 2002, which was the second time I ran. I took the 2000 presidential year off. In 2002, Paul Wellstone died 10 days before the election. It was a flurry of, you know, uh, a memorial, which was Mm -hmm. uh, very politicized nationally. Republicans seized on an opportunity and Walter Mondale stepped in very late. And what I learned about 2002 is elections can be driven by issues that have nothing to do with the candidates. So the state house uh, really hit a low in terms of numbers of Democrats. Hmm. And it wasn't necessarily what we were doing out there in the field. It was the impact from the Wellstone plane crash and everything that followed that. So I think what I my takeaway from 2002 was you have to make yourself kind of um, resilient to whatever's happening at the national level, because the mm -hmm. national dialogue and, and bigger races than state led races can dictate the outcome. But if you're a super strong candidate and you kind of uh, triple check everything and take the belt and suspenders approach to all of your campaigning, you can try to make yourself strong enough in your district to withstand those those, hmm. you know, ups and downs of the national picture. Yeah. What is that balance for you like in terms of the amount of attention and study that you put into national issues? I'm assuming that, you know, a number of constituents, uh, many of them that you engage with have those types of issues, you know, whether it be Trump or, you know, Trump's impeachment, um, even things like the the infrastructure bill, uh, front of mind. Obviously, those aren't things that are directly on your plate. You have a lot that you're dealing with here in Minnesota, but, um, you know, is it, you know, are, are these issues things that you pay a lot of attention to? And 
uh, when they come up with constituents, how do you handle talking about issues that are on their mind that maybe aren't necessarily um, you know, part of your portfolio? I really focus on the state legislative issues and the things that we have control over. I'll never forget door knocking in 2010. I walked up this guy's driveway and he said, hey, Melissa. And I was like, this is fantastic. This guy knows he has a state representative. He knows I'm a state representative. He knows my name. <laughs> this great conversation. And as I was walking away, I said, can I count on your vote in November? And he said, no, I'm so sorry. I can't vote for you this year. And I said, why? And he said, I have to send a message to Obama. Wow. Um, so you you have to understand that um, there are things you can control and things you can't control in this line of work. Um, and trying to break through on issues like school funding, things that are a lot closer to home and things where we've been productive. For example, I think part of our success story as Democrats right now is being a party that's willing to act on climate. I think a lot of young people, a lot of voters, really, no matter how old they are, see that the planet is literally on fire. You look at the, the wildfires in Canada affecting the air quality of half of the country. Well, Democrats are willing to take on that really amazingly large challenge. And at the state level, we're doing something about it. So I try to focus on where we've been able to produce to, to break through to different voters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we, you know, we live in such polarized times and not, not only, you know, that can be kind of a cliche, but not only are, are things polarized politically, but, you know, especially on the right. I mean, we all have seen all these stories recently about, you know, Trump directing harassment or threats towards various Democrats or just, um, you know, it, it can be tough being an elected official when um, everything is so charged and can be very hostile. And your district is not, you know, it's not like you're in Minneapolis. I mean, you're kind of out in the burbs. Um, you know, I'm up here currently in Forest Lake, which is very deep red. You're not that far away from here. And, you know, when you first were elected, it was basically kind of like a 50-50 district. Now your margins are more, you know, between like 15 and 20 points. So it's it's gotten more comfortable for you. But there is that segment of your district that are Trump voters and uh, would probably never vote for you under any circumstances. So what's kind of your, I mean, you mentioned that one interaction you had in 2010, that seemed very amicable, even if that person wasn't going to vote for you. But um, how do you manage those sorts of interactions with people who are your constituents, but, you know, obviously would never vote for you? And um, in some cases, I, I assume it can get kind of scary if they're really down like the QAnon rabbit hole or become kind of radicalized by Trumpism. You know, I've only in in all the years that I've been on the ballot, I think I've been on the ballot about 10 times. Uh, I've only had one voter who's really been scary, hmm. you know, really angry and really wanted me off his property. I've met thousands of people who are really nice and thousands of people who will never vote for me, don't like my politics, don't have a lot of nice things to say to me, but do understand that I'm doing the work. I'm out there on the streets. I think at this level in the state ledge races, when you're willing to trudge up somebody's driveway and talk to them, you get a lot of uh, credit from the voter for doing that. I'll never forget, um, I voted for the Twin Stadium mm -hmm. in, I think it was 05 or 06. I went door knocking in 06 and one of the voters said, you know, just kind of went on a rant about there should have been a referendum and voters should have gotten to vote on that. And the conversation was going on a bit long. You know, you got to keep moving. There's 15,000 houses. And I said, well, you probably are going to vote for the other candidate. And he said, no, no, you're the only one who will listen to me. So even though there are Trump voters 
who um, who vote for our candidates because we're doing the work to go to listen. And so maybe you can break through on an issue like I was talking about before. But another way that you break through with voters is actually hearing them. And I think um, going down from the level of the talking heads and and kind of the vitriol that we see in in some of the um, the media interactions between candidates and just talking to each other as human beings, sometimes we can break through that that partisanship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a little bit of a sidebar, but I'm curious about the the twin stadium vote because um, you know stadiums in Minnesota at least historically, and you know we might now be facing another one with the Timberwolves here. It seems like at some point are going to want a new arena, and you know this is kind of a thing nationally that happens where these teams that are making a lot of money, owners making a lot of money, ask for public subsidy um, for a new ballpark or stadium or arena. Um, the Twin Stadium, if I'm, if I'm remembering this correctly, had both like a Hennepin County, which is the county that Minneapolis is in. They had some public subsidy there, and then they had some statewide subsidy. Now, you know, I'm actually headed uh, later today to the Twins game, um, and it's a beautiful ballpark. It seems like there has been, you know, just as kind of like an anecdotal situation, you go down to that part of Minneapolis, there's tons of bars and restaurants, or, you know, offices, condos. There's been a ton of right. development down there. But that was obviously a very controversial vote. I'm guessing probably particularly so in a district like yours that is uh, pretty divided, you know, between red and blue. Um, was that a tough vote for you to take? Uh, what was your logic? And then how do you think it's played out, you know, now that it's, you know, a dozen or so years later since the stadium has opened? So funny, the difference between the twin stadium debate and the Viking stadium so, um, and the Gopher Stadium was kind of like a non-issue. Everybody was fine that we voted to build the bank um, or whatever they call it now. <laughs> um, so the Twin Stadium, in that time, there were a lot of people saying we should have a referendum. And I voted that we should have a referendum, but then, you know, that amendment failed. And I still voted for the bill because we didn't want the Twins to leave. There's a lot of Fortune 500 companies in Minnesota. We have more than our average per capita. And uh, those folks were saying, look, part of being... Uh, a Fortune 500 city is having sports teams like this, having these kind of amenities. We were also hearing from um, folks who are Twins fans and then folks who would build the stadium. So that one was very controversial in the late 2000s. The Viking Stadium, you know, I'm sure in, in some places in Minneapolis, they turned out every single Minneapolis city councilor who voted for it, if I remember right. But in my district, it was very popular. I would walk up the driveway of of people who weren't my typical voter, right? I do very well with elderly women. That's probably my favorite demographic to talk to and I'm the most popular with them. But like uh, middle-aged guys, you know, that I never know what I'm gonna run into when I walk up. But I had a lot of um, interactions where I'd be halfway up the driveway and they'd say, did you vote for the Viking Stadium? And I'd say, yes. And they'd say, you've got my vote, keep going. So um, oddly enough, I don't know if that means that there's more Vikings fans than Twins fans or just we've accepted that this is what happens, right? Yeah. Like if no state or city provided these subsidies, we wouldn't do it. Um, and it would be great if no state or city provided these subsidies. But this is part of having a major league baseball team or uh, a national football team. Mm. Has there been any sort of like after action uh studies done by the legislature state agencies looking into because again like when you go to these areas like they seem thriving you know i can't imagine saying that these stadiums weren't successful just from like an economic development standpoint i guess there is the argument that it's kind of a redistribution with some of these taxes that 
you know, um, less affluent people are paying them and then they can't afford to go to games and things like that. And I, I certainly understand that viewpoint as well. But I would have to imagine, and I'm just curious if there have has been any research into this that you're familiar with, that both the Twins and the Vikings stadiums have been, you know, beyond at least matching people's expectations, if not exceeding them for economic development. Well, I think they seem very successful. I think the Minneapolis Federal Reserve would disagree and has done some research. And and their perspective is that people just redirect their entertainment dollars. Hmm. So if you weren't going to a Twins game today, you might be going to a movie theater instead, or you might be going to local theater. You know, I think it's it's a nice thing to have sports because whether you're a Republican or a Democrat in Minnesota, you're likely a Twins fan. Whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, you're either a Vikings or a Packers fan. And we can have a conversation and we can connect. And I think in a, a polarized society, it is still nice to have those things where we're all literally on the same team. Yeah, totally agreed. Um, so we've been talking a lot about kind of like statewide issues. Obviously, your, your portfolio as speaker is very wide ranging. It has to do with issues that probably only kind of touch upon your district, you know, are more, you know, affecting people in other parts of the state. Was that a big adjustment for you kind of making that transition from being, you know, a local legislator to having more of a statewide leadership role? And how do you kind of divvy up your responsibilities? Obviously, you have to be you wouldn't have your seat if you weren't doing good constituent service and kind of addressing your constituents needs. But then beyond that, you know, as speaker, you have to deal with these issues that affect the whole state. So how, how did that change your your uh your workflow your job and um how do you divvy up those divided responsibilities well i would say my number one responsibility is keeping the team united i think mm-hmm. the governor has referred to it as herding cats um and <laughs> he's you know glad that it's my job and not his but we we have stayed really united so i think kind of like being the the head coach for the t- for the team mm-hmm. is the part about being speaker that's very different from just being a rank and file legislator But in terms of the portfolio of issues, I used to work almost exclusively on transportation finance and transportation safety. And then after the bridge collapse uh, in 2007, and we funded the transportation system pretty well in a huge bill in uh, 2008, where we overrode Tim Pawlenty's veto, which is like getting the super your Super Bowl ring in politics. Um, then I moved on to the energy arena because it became clear, you know, that was the IPCC report from the UN came out in 2007, which was kind of a zeitgeist moment in climate action. And I got the opportunity to be the energy chair in 2013 and 2014. And I say to to members of the legislature, the greatest job in politics is to be a chair mm-hmm. because you can really deeply dive into those policy areas. So um, the weird thing about being speaker is I can't even really carry bills for my district because I have to find somebody who's close by to carry them. Because if you put the speaker in front of a committee that's got Republicans and Democrats, it's just going to be incoming fire. Right. And so for some issues, it's it's just better for everyone that. They don't know how important they are to me Mm. so that it can't be used as a bargaining chip. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wanted to uh, pick your brain a little bit on transportation specifically, because correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe the North Star train, does that go through your district? The North Star train does go through my district right okay. now. It doesn't stop in my district. Okay, well, that's, yeah, that that's kind of a unique circumstance there. And for people who aren't familiar, North Star, the North Star train is a commuter train line, basically goes up to close to St. Cloud, which is kind of on the fringes of the metro here, maybe like an hour outside of Minneapolis. But um, you know, 
the Twin Cities tends to still be a very car centric uh, metro area where a lot of people drive. I mean, there are two light rail lines and there's some rapid bus, but a lot of the ridership and usage of those services uh, went down over the COVID pandemic and hasn't totally bounced back. Although I think it's gotten a little bit better. But I mean, do you see that as being an area in terms of making investments in transport in, in mass transit? I, I know that there is, you know, an extension of one of the light rail lines being talked about into North Minneapolis, the Southwest line, which is kind of turned into a big controversy in its own right. It's a third light rail line that would go to the Southwest burbs, but there's been a lot of issues with construction going through some lakes there and doing some like um, structural damage to buildings that has caused huge cost overruns. And so it's become something that Republicans have kind of capitalized upon as being, you know, wasteful spending or being unnecessarily expensive. Um, what do you see as kind of, this is a very broad question, but the future of mass transit, I mean, do you think there's an appetite to, to even build out the the rail system more or is it more you know redirecting some of these investments into bus transit and then also the question that's maybe more pertinent to your district with kind of commuter rail that goes out further into the burbs um it seems like north star is kind of on the ropes at this point um so you know what would what, you know is there hope for that sort of transit system in the future just what's kind of the the terrain of the uh transportation as the in terms of the state of play at the legislature yeah, I think we're having this kind of mass reset after the pandemic, right? When you look at commercial real estate right now, um, our downtowns are quieter places than they used to be. We used to refer to communities like Brooklyn Park, where I live, as a bedroom community, and people would commute in to go to work. But here I am sitting at home. My husband's on the other side of the house sitting at home doing his job. And so um, commercial real estate is seeing a, a vast change. Well, Similarly, transit is right. If if my husband doesn't need to go to the office, he doesn't need to get to the office, and same same for me. So I think when we look at what our state investments in transit will be, we have to kind of have a five year settling out period before we would make major investments in things that bring commuters from their home to an office, because we don't know five years from now. It could be that major employers like Target say, okay, we want everybody back. Right now they're saying, you know, you don't have to come back to the office. So I think we have to hit pause mm -hmm. on major fixed route transit investments. But there's another kind of travel that is really important that we invest in, and that is intercity travel. Oh. So from Minneapolis to Duluth, Minneapolis and St. Paul to Duluth, Minneapolis and St. Paul to Rochester. A lot of people that fly into MSP and then they want to go to Rochester for a treatment at Mayo. Um, the problem with North Star is it really was designed as intercity commuter rail. So it was going to help commuters between St. Cloud and Minneapolis all along the line. But it was also going to connect these two major cities of St. Cloud and Minneapolis. Well, when it finally got approved under Tim Pawlenty, it didn't go all the way to St. Cloud. And so I think it was kind of doomed to failure when they stopped it at Big Lake because Big Lake is a nice community, but it's not St. Cloud. <laughs> yeah. And so I think we need to convert the North Star commuter rail to North Star intercity passenger rail. Okay. So you could get on the train in St. Cloud and switch in Coon Rapids and go on up to Duluth. There's a lot of people who want to watch movies while they're going somewhere. And, um, you know, we... From a climate change standpoint, rail travel is much better for the environment than, than airplanes. 
So if we can get high-speed rail between Minneapolis and Duluth, people will take it. If we can get high-speed rail between Minneapolis and Rochester, people will take it. Right now, the open question is, can we serve those markets with a rail product that people will prefer to air transportation or car transportation? And I would just say, we shouldn't invest unless the ridership studies tell us that the riders will be there. Yeah. Yeah. Quick sidebar here, um, because this was kind of at the beginning of your tenure in the legislature. Actually, you, it was. I think this happened slightly before you you were first elected. But how much credit does Jesse Ventura deserve for the light rail? I know that that's kind of become after his governorship something that he often brings up as like one of his big accomplishments. And you know, I, I believe he did sign the the bill that gave funding to those lines, which now you can take from the airport to downtown Minneapolis or from downtown St. Paul to downtown Minneapolis. Um, and Jesse's kind of had a little bit of a um, uh, comeback, you know, over the past few months because he's also been a, a big proponent of. Uh, legal marijuana, which the legislature just approved a few months ago. But what, what are your memories of, of how the light rail debate went? And was that really something that Jesse was championing at the time? You know, I think early in his governorship, he was a very pragmatic leader. He had um, some really outstanding human beings in his cabinet. One of them was Jan Malcolm, um, who, you know, became famous during the pandemic in Minnesota of helping us manage through that. When I think of the accomplishments that we would remember uh, Jesse Ventura for, I guess light rail is one of them, but the other one is up here in the northern suburbs, we have a highway called 610. And he used to joke that it should be called Ventura Highway. Um, <laughs> so I think, you know, early on, he was a pragmatist and and people appreciated that. And he got some things done by working with Democrats and Republicans. Yeah. And then he he kind of went off the rails after 9-11, right? I mean, we don't need to get all down that rabbit hole. Actually, Tom Hauser, who is uh, kind of a conservative reporter for the local uh, Hubbard Broadcasting Station. Actually, his book on Jesse Ventura's term is quite good. I remember reading that a long time ago, and he kind of gets into how Jesse, his last couple of years in office, went off the rails, became very paranoid about security for himself after 9-11, possible attempts on his well-being and life. And um, Jesse, of course, for those who have not uh, followed Minnesota politics closely, ended up not running for re-election in 2002, after a pretty promising start to his governorship as a third-party candidate. So an interesting kind of historical era that kind of coincided, I guess, with when you were first running for office. Right. I was a really young lawyer at that time. So after I ran and lost in 98, then I practiced law uh, for the next four years. And I think that towards the end of his term, it seemed to me that the fact that everybody's kind of always on you and always coming at you got old to him. Mm -hmm. And it is that is part of politics, right? There's always an issue or a controversy or a combat of the day. And that can be tiring. And I think he found that ultimately not not a fulfilling way to um, to earn a living. Yeah. Yeah. A couple last things here for you. We've talked a little bit um, off and on during this conversation about Trump and Trumpism and how that's impacted Minnesota politics. Um, I've always thought just as kind of an observer, someone who covers a little bit of Minnesota politics from like a 30,000 foot level that you know Trump has been a particularly bad fit for the Minnesota Republican Party because historically the Republicans who have had success in Minnesota are kind of moderates, common sense. You know, they're talking about like Arnie Carlson or Palenti, uh, figures kind of in that you know not huge controversial um, kind of shock jock personalities. Um, you know, we kind of saw that in this most recent governor's election where Republicans put up Scott Jensen, who's a doctor, but you know one of these kind of like anti-vax quack doctors, and that didn't go well. For Republicans, um, what do you think Trumpism, kind of very broadly, you know, in one other, Trump did not win in 2016 in Minnesota. Ted Cruz, or no, excuse me, Rubio did. Rubio won in Minnesota, and then he won in D.C. I think were the only 
two places that he won in 2016. So Trump has, does not have a, a long record of success here other than in 2016. I think he only lost by like a point and a half to Hillary Clinton, which for Minnesota was scary how close that was. But you know, what, what have been your observations in terms of what Trumpism as kind of a national phenomenon has done to the Republican Party here in Minnesota? And is there like, what's that going to look like next year? He's going to be on the ballot again. Now, as I'm thinking off the top of my head, I don't think there's a lot of statewides next year in Minnesota. There might be one Senate seat, but it's not, you know, the governor isn't on the ballot, the AG isn't on the ballot. So that could be kind of a unique year. But um, just very broadly, what, what do you think Trumpism has done to the Minnesota Republican Party? Yeah, it uh, it has not been good. That's for yeah. sure. I think um, when you look at the voters that that still swing back and forth, and there are fewer and fewer every election cycle, they want people to get along. They don't want people who are too far one way or the other. So, um, you know, when you ask me to explain Trumpism in Minnesota, I just have such a hard time understanding why he has even the support that he does among Republicans. It just doesn't make sense to me. It, so, it, you know, and I, I can't really explain the appeal. He still has got the base, right? I mean, it really certainly looks like he's going to be the candidate, but it, it hasn't been great for the Minnesota Republican Party. And when you talk about Minnesotans in, in the past who won statewide, Dave Durenberger, uh, Norm Coleman, Tim Pawlenty, Arnie Carlson, they are much more practical pragmatic i don't know if that's part of our like agrarian history that we're a pragmatic people um but we haven't elected people who have have put that partisanship out there in front and really led with that partisan lens and i think scott jensen was a bit much for people right i mean <laughs> it was <everyone>. just too <laughs> vitriolic and i i like the word quack i think telling people not to get a vaccine um and really ultimately had the impact of of killing people by them not being vaccinated um, against COVID. Um, you know, I think Minnesotans want practical, get it done. Don't give me the garbage. Don't give me the song and dance. Just get the work done. You know, when I turn on the water, I want clean water coming out. I want to make sure I, I, my streets are plowed in the winter and they're safe. Mm -hmm. um, and then and be nice to each other. You know, I think Walter Mondale kind of set the standard mm -hmm. and what the standard that he set was it doesn't just matter what we do. It matters how we do it. It matters how we treat each other in public and and the example that we set for our children as public servants. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that, that's kind of true, even on the Democratic side, too, whether you're talking about Governor Walls or Governor Dayton before then, it seems like the the electorate in Minnesota kind of likes those sort of moderate, you know, I mean, it's been skewing more to the left, obviously, the last 20 years or so. But, the, you know, maybe and maybe going back even further in this, there is more of a history of like further left candidates winning statewide. But it seems like the statewides typically go for kind of those people in the middle, whether they're center right or center left. Paul Wellstone would be a notable yeah, exception. And the thing about Paul that I think people loved was you knew where he was. He was very clear about where he was. And he wasn't unkind to Republicans. He was he was clear about his progressive values. Um, and and people liked that he was a straight shooter. Yeah. Yeah. One of the tragic, you know, what ifs that he, you know, had that tragic accident not occurred. Um, he was still thinking only in his 50s at that point. And um, as you mentioned, that that election cycle, you know, obviously the, the tragedy that he passed away, but then that became uh, kind of a spectacle 
in its own right where uh, there was a memorial for him on campus at the U of M. And I think um, it kind of turned into almost like a, not an endorsement for Mondale, but I, I know Jesse Ventura was one person who was very upset over how that memorial went. He was governor at the time. And um, that set the stage for Norm Coleman winning and, you know, then the recount with uh, Al Franken a few years later. So, um, you know, obviously the, the, the main tragedy there being the end of Paul Wellstone's very promising life and political career. But, you know, he, he'd probably still be in the Senate today had he survived. You know, he's just such a wonderful inspiration for those who are serving today. Um, we, we quote him all the time. But the other issue you kind of raised with your comments is how close Minnesota elections are, how truly purple we are, and that really, as Democrats, the state might be coming our way, but we have worked our butts off to win, and we don't take anything for granted. We know the harder you work, the luckier you get, and none of this is a given. So whether it's a recount between Norm Coleman and uh, Al Franken that came down to what, like 214 votes, something like that, or the recount between Mark Dayton and uh, I think it was Tom Emmer in 2010. Yep. That was maybe um, just a few thousand votes. Minnesota elections are close. And so uh, we as Democrats will in 24 do what we have been doing for the last 20 years that I've been involved. We will go and we will talk to people and we'll at their doors say, what's important to you? What do you want us to work on at the state capitol? Wow. And we will listen. Yeah. And, and when Norm, Norm Coleman lost that recount, he conceded. Um, it's, you know, you can imagine these days if such a recount happened in, in the, <clears throat> excuse me, in the current political climate, how that would go and how nationalized that would become with people like Trump weighing in. So um, astonishing, yeah. isn't it? That yeah. that is where we are. I mean, January 6, 2021 is still just an absolutely shocking thing to have happened in this country. And he, it, whenever I think of it, I, I just can't believe that happened here. Yeah. When it's also, it's, it's, you know, kind of stunning to reflect on that, that recount between Franken and Coleman took like six months, right? Because I think uh, Franken wasn't sworn in until like June or possibly even July of the year following the election, uh, which I believe that was the 2010 cycle. Um, so, you know, and, and no one really raised any particular concerns that I can remember about the process. I mean, everybody was kind of on board with how that process unfolded. And the other element to that was, I believe the early counts had Coleman ahead. So not only did the recount occur, but it actually ended up the result ended up flipping based on the recount. And yet, um, I guess that's kind of a testament to, you know, some of the the guardrails of democracy here in Minnesota that at least at that time, no one really raised a stink about how that unfolded or cried fraud or anything like that. You know, it was 2008. Um, he was on the ballot with um, Barack Obama, and he was the last vote they needed for the Affordable Care Act. So that's why the Affordable Care Act couldn't get passed. I think it was July um, that year, which also shows you how consequential people's votes are. You know, in 2016, after Donald Trump won and he almost won in Minnesota, I really had to dig deep and ask myself, is electoral politics the way I want to be spending my life? Like in a country that can elect Donald Trump, is this working? Like, do I believe in it? And my conclusion was, and my recommitment was, there is nothing more important than talking to voters about the power of their individual vote and the difference that they can make that they really have the power in their hands to determine the direction of their state and the country by by just exercising their right to vote. Yeah. You talked a little bit earlier about um, how Democrats have been winning in Minnesota, but you know, not only have you been winning, I mean, we, we touched a little bit about all the stuff that happened last session, you know, just a breathtaking array of progressive legislation that was signed into law. 
Um, kind of last exit question here. I, I you know was reading some interviews that you were doing in May and June, and when people would ask you, you know, what's up for the next session, because it, it seemed like you guys got so many things done um, that you know the big ticket stuff is already off the table, and you have another session, of course, before there's another election. But you know, now that you've had a summer, um, we're approaching Labor Day. You know, maybe these are more meetings that happen. You know, once people kind of plug back in in the fall after the summer. But um, what what are some items that you think could be on the agenda for the session next year? Well, I think Minnesotans will continue to expect that we're taking a look at um, the three basic bread and butter, which is education, healthcare, and economy. So making sure that we're doing what we can to that people have good jobs, uh, good paying jobs in Minnesota. Um, the big thing that we do in the even numbered years is the capital investment bill. So hopefully Republicans will play ball because we can do a lot more if Republicans join with us. So in order to pass borrowing in Minnesota, we need a super majority. And we're authorized to borrow $880 million next session. And we have $800 million in cash that we parked for next year's capital investment bill. So if Republicans will play ball, we'll have about a $1.7 billion capital investment bill. That means a lot of jobs and a lot of investment in Minnesota communities. But if Republicans choose not to play ball, then we'll only have the $800 million in cash for investing in Minnesota communities. So the big effort will be bipartisanship, working with Republicans and uh, building infrastructure that serves Minnesotans. Mm-hmm. And, and that could be that could be tough for Republicans in an election year. They're going to be under pressure not to... Get along, you know, go along with the program there. So uh, stay tuned for that because that that stuff always becomes harder in an election year when people are hitting the campaign trail right after the session ends. So uh, there there could be some. Do you anticipate that 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 you know is that kind of your understanding of how things might go too, or do you have some optimism that maybe ultimately, as they did this past session, that some Republicans will go along? I have some optimism. The argument that I make to Republican leaders in the House and the Senate is that elections rarely turn on what happens at the state legislature. Um, In 2020, the elections were about the murder of George Floyd and the aftermath and the pandemic. People weren't really thinking about what did you do or not do in the 2020 session. And so it's impossible to predict what the issues are that will control in 2024, but it's not likely to be whether or not Republicans voted for a bonding bill. So my argument is let's work together, get this done for the people of Minnesota, and then duke it out in the political season on the political issues. Yeah, and Democrats should be well positioned. I think right around uh, this time next year, some of the the marijuana dispensaries will be coming, or they're not even dispensaries; they're shops. Basically, will be coming online. So um, I don't know if that helps or hurts. Probably helps, right? When you're out there campaigning, it should generate some economic activity and make uh, you know college students and uh, you know not just college students, but a lot of people happy. I think that 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 will boomers. Be so. <laughs> I think boomers are going to be the biggest people using this product um, for their arthritis and to help them sleep at night. But yeah, I I do think getting things done um, is something that voters appreciate. Well, Speaker Speaker Hortman, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, nice talking to you. That's it for today. Thanks for tuning in. New episodes of the Aaron Rupar Show drop every Thursday. Please like the show uh, on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your circle. Thank you for tuning in.